0: Time now for Scoops with Danny Mac, the podcast on 101 ESPN.
1: Away we go. It's the Tuesday edition of Scoops with Danny Mac. Dan McLaughlin with you coming up on the show, Dave Matter. And Dave is the Missouri beat writer for STLtoday.com and also the post-dispatch Mizzou against Kentucky this weekend. The Wildcats, a six-point favorite down in Columbia. And we'll also get into Missouri basketball so welcome into the show we begin with the fall classic and we'll get into some of the news of the day the dodgers and the rays and for the first time since the cardinals and the red sox in 2013 the world series will have the two best teams at least record-wise in the fall classic it's just the fourth time in the wildcard era that the best teams record-wise have made it. Dodgers and Rays combined for a 692 winning percentage in the regular season, which is ridiculous in itself. It's the highest combined winning percentage for a World Series matchup since, how about this, 1906. So we've got the two best teams. In terms of winning percentage and records, you have a huge payroll in the Dodgers against a small market, low payroll team like the Rays. Commissioner Rob Manfred says that payroll and winning aren't correlated yet. 18 of the last 20 titles have been won by a team in the top half of payroll. The Rays will try to change that. They rank 27th in payroll this year. Tyler Glass now goes tonight for the Rays.
2: Last year, we kind of realized like we were we could compete with really anyone here. So I don't know if it, there's like any intimidation or anything like that. I think we all understand how good we are as a team. Um, I, I think stepping outside of it, knowing that like they all do have high payrolls and we have like the lowest, is pretty outstanding. I just say in terms of like just numbers in general, just like how good the front office has done and what the organization has done to put this team together is pretty amazing. But as far as competition goes, I don't really think payroll is like too much of something that players think about for me anyway i just think it's kind of like you see who's out there who's on who's in the lineup and you attack them accordingly
1: it's about scouting it's about then player development and then you got to have a little luck the story for the race this year the emergence of randy Arozarena, tim kirkchen of espn
0: seven homers during the regular season and then he hit seven homers in the postseason so no rookies ever done that Carlos Beltran and Barry Bonds are the only players ever to hit eight homers in one postseason. That's what he's up against. He's got 21 hits already. Derek Jeter has the rookie record for a a postseason with 22. He's going to blow past that. And he's been the biggest reason, offensively, that the Rays are where they are. That's so classic Rays that they found him. I know I checked on that trade when it happened because I didn't understand it. And one of their guys whispered to me, watch for Randy Rosarena. He's the key guy in this trade. And frankly, I didn't know much about him at all. And as it turns out, the Rays were right again. They saw something in this guy. They saw real power potential. And boy, have we seen it come out. And this is why baseball is the greatest game, is that this is like a guy coming out of the D League and and making all the three-pointers and taking the team to the NBA Finals. It just doesn't work that way in other sports but it's working that way for the Rays and for this kid.
1: I was watching the other day, and I don't know if you guys agree with me, but something I saw with him, his upper body has changed. Now, I know that he's hitting everything. Curveballs, sliders, fastballs, so there's an adjustment at the plate. Look at his upper body. And then I did some digging on this, asked some people about it. He's put on about 20 pounds from this time last year to this year. So here's a guy. And again, this is about luck. This is about player development. This is about an individual making changes. All those things have come together. So good on him. Good on the Rays. And we'll see how it all plays out with Matthew we Hey, we've beaten a dead horse. I get it. But, you know, this is a guy that had COVID-19, didn't break with the club, called up in late August, and now has caught fire. And he's done it on the biggest stage. So we'll see if the Dodgers pitch to him. If it was me, I wouldn't. He's the hottest hitter on the planet right now. And the amazing part of a Rosa Raina's season, he's still eligible to be the rookie of the year next year in the American league. did not have many at bats. So the league is still trying to figure him out. The Rays offense hasn't been about contact, but really hard contact home runs to be exact. They've hit 25 home runs in 14 postseason games. 41 of their 57 runs scored have come via the home run. That's an astounding 72%. They batted just 209. Now, batting average, you take it for what it's worth. Again, you've got to slug. That's what baseball is about. So you think about the Cardinals? they got to hit home runs, too. As a team, they've averaged 11 strikeouts per game in this postseason. But timely home runs. Can somebody other than Randy arena step up in the World Series? The Dodgers, they will have three-time Cy Young Award winner Clayton Kershaw go tonight. Obviously the World Series is a special thing. I think maybe the question is does it compare regular season to a normal season and things like that? And I think the answer is yes, you know, just from what we've been going through in the postseason, you know, the
2: postseason's been, you know, in some aspects a little bit harder with the extra round and things like that. It's been a little bit more of a crapshoot with um, you know 16 teams making the postseason this tournament that was started in October was was really it's been a tough go you know facing different teams and in different bubbles and different things like that so to be able to win a world series after all this would be uh, just as special as any other one for sure
1: he's trying to change the narrative 10 postseason game one outings for Kershaw four and five ERA near six ouch big time baseball podcast it was released this morning john Heyman, mlb insider was on that and one of the things that he addressed in that podcast the future of yadier molina so this was released about a half hour 45 minutes ago i believe and this is what he had to say
0: uh, yadier molina same thing in st louis i mean he is a legend uh, in my mind a hall of famer i'd love to see him finish it out uh, a little bit of news here um his agent, Melvin Roman, told me he would like to get a two-year deal and play it out until he's 40. He's 38 now. And, uh, you know, whether that's in St. Louis or somewhere else, I think somebody's going to give him a two-year deal. And judging by the fact St. Louis gave him three years at $20 million a year, I think ultimately they will give him that two-year deal. I don't think he'll get the qualifying offer. I don't know. That would be an interesting one. I, it's going to be those four guys that I think and maybe Simeon.
1: Uh, uh, well, we'll see because what has to happen – is that if he hits free agency, 16 million bucks from the Cardinals. Um, Yeah, two years at least is what I was anticipating. That is what he would want. That would take him to age 40 season. I think everybody wants to see him retire as a Cardinal. You have budgetary constraints with every single team. And the big question is, and whether or not you want to hear this or not, Will fans be in the stands? And then at that point, is it 25% capacity? Is it fifty percent? Is it a hundred percent? And then you start saying, Okay, will fans feel comfortable coming back? Or here's some projections that we have, and then here's what's in the budget. So you know the Cardinals are gonna do their best to try to bring them back. They want him back. Mike Schilt is on the record and saying, I want him back. And I'm sure John Mosaylock and Bill DeWitt want him back as well. But fascinating. At least that's uh, John Heyman saying he spoke to Yachty's agent. He wants a two-year extension. Off to the NFL. The Chiefs, Andy Reid. They actually ran the ball last night. There are three backs in the backfield. They give it off to... Darrell Williams, he breaks
2: a tackle, 10-5, touchdown, Kansas City, the flip bone. The Chiefs went to three backs, a flipped wishbone, and a 13-yard touchdown by Darryl Williams, giving the Chiefs a coveted two-possession lead. Well, listen, we felt like, uh, you know, and this is me talking now, so I didn't think um, I gave the guys enough of a chance last week uh, with it, and uh, especially the second half, and, and so... Um, we want to make sure that, you know, we're best when we have some kind of a, a balance going, when you can kind of go back and forth. It puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the defense. And, and so uh, we were able to, uh, to do both, and we felt like we, we needed uh, both in this game.
1: A 26-17 to 17 win for the Chiefs over the Bills. It was a doubleheader of Monday Night Football. It was only the second time in 37 starts. How about this? Second time, 37 starts for Patrick Mahomes, which the Chiefs ran the ball more than they passed it. Mahomes is the fastest player in modern NFL history to throw 90 touchdown passes, besting Hall of Famer dan marino andy reed give him credit he adjusted on the fly the cardinals blew out the cowboys in dallas 38 to 10 tough night for our buddy st louis and ezekiel elliott who had back-to-back drives that resulted in fumbles i'm
2: just gonna keep saying over and over um i mean i started the game out with two fumbles gave the ball away and that gave them all the momentum that they needed to uh, go in. And- take off uh so i mean i was i want to say i'm sorry and this one's on me and um i need to be better for this team
1: head coach mike mccarthy has seen elliott lose now a career high four fumbles six games and the opponent has turned every takeaway into a touchdown
2: it's a discouraging period uh you know it's it's something that we work uh diligently on it's it's not carrying over to the game and and, that, and that's you know something we have to just continue to stay after um you know maybe frankly maybe we're trying too hard or you know maybe it's 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 uh we're over coaching it we, you know we have to it, it's um clearly has has put us in a position we've been playing uphill every single game you know we, we haven't we haven't got into a group groove or a rhythm and got out in front uh yet this year um and it's and it's the self-inflicted wounds that uh continue to plague us so we got we got work to do, and we got to do it fast uh, because, like I said, we got Washington coming on us quickly.
1: Here's the bad news for the Cowboys: they're two and four. Here's the good news for the Cowboys: at two and four, they still lead the NFC East. That's awful. Tampa Bay four and two leads the South. The Bears are five and one atop the NFC North. Seattle unbeaten, leading the NFC West, and the AFC division leaders: Bills, Steelers, Titans and the Chiefs. The NFL has concluded its investigation of the Tennessee Titans and the handling of their COVID-19 outbreak. What do you think about this? Really nothing coming down according to Adam Schefter. In the end,
3: ultimately, the Titans organization will face a potential fine here, but there will not be any suspensions for any individuals. There will not be any forfeiture of draft picks. There were some people who initially thought that these penalties could be severe. We followed a story yesterday on ESPN.com that said that it wasn't gonna go down that way. And again, today, a short time ago, the NFL made it official informing the Titans that there will not be suspensions, there will not be a loss of draft picks, but there is the potential for a fine for some of the issues that the team did engage in.
1: If you missed it yesterday, interesting interview on the fast lane. Jeremy Rutherford of The Athletic covers the Blues. He was on the show. He was asked about who will get the seed, the captain for the Blues. It's got to be Ryan O'Reilly. Let's just stop with this. He gave some of the options that are up for debate.
2: Yeah, probably probably a slam dunk that uh, the sea goes to O'Reilly. Ever since he came here from Buffalo, people have looked at him as the captain type, taking some of those younger guys under his wings and you know what he did during that Stanley Cup run. Uh, but you have to be fair, and so I think we're going to mention as many names as possible, maybe even up to five in the article. Uh, which should be out tomorrow. But you have O'Reilly, you have uh, Braden Shen, I believe, is a candidate. I think you have to have uh, Tarasenko in there, even though he won't be on the ice to start the season. And then you look at uh, Jaden Schwartz, a guy who's been around for a long time, uh, takes uh, commands a a ton of uh, respect. And then I think uh, throw Colton Pareko's name in there. He might not be ready for that yet. And especially I'll make the point in the article that uh, he really needs to focus on the ice and, uh, and develop that game and become that number one defenseman that they're going to look for now with Alex Petrangelo gone. But I do think perhaps if O'Reilly were to hold it down for a few years, that, that Colton Pareko might be a guy who's in the mix in a couple years. But uh, those will be the five choices, and obviously we'll allow some write-ins because I'm going to have a poll for, for fans to vote. But you know, kind of a good debate, even though you think that uh, O'Reilly's probably the
1: guy. The only other guy outside O'Reilly is Pareko in my mind. That's it cornerstone defenseman getting better and better he takes on a different role this year with the club you got to figure that he's going to be here long term well i said that about alex petrangelo too so i guess i better check myself but ryan o'reilly's the guy Period. End of story. World number one golfer Dustin Johnson is withdrawn from the Zozo Championship at Sherwood due to COVID. By the way, Phil Mickelson. I'm looking forward to this. Steph Curry, Charles Barkley, take place. Uh, we'll have a fundraiser take place the day after Thanksgiving, and that's going to raise a bunch of money for inner city kids. So, looking forward to that. More of what you want to hear. Scoops with Danny Mac in podcast form on 101
0: ESPN.
1: A little fake jet sweep across the middle and to the end zone, a touchdown to the tight end Nico Hey. Missouri has taken the lead. It was a team effort. All three phases never gave up on each other. They kept believing, kept fighting. We made plays we had to on both sides of the ball. Got to be Marshall. You
2: got to take a look at Marshall. Brennan's going to roll right. Looking in that direction,
1: throws right and it's knocked away. It Amazing. Bledsoe knocked it away. Missouri, almost certainly, now is going to win this game. It was first and goal from inside the one. That would be a signature win already for Eli Drinkwitz in year one at Mizzou, and that was a couple of weekends ago against LSU, the defending national champions. Let's bring in Dave Matter, who covers Mizzou sports for. STL Today and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch does a great job in the most unique and tough circumstances to be covering a college football team, basketball team, college athletics, uh, really athletics in general. Dave, always great to have you on and always nice to hear your voice. Hopefully everybody is safe with your family and things are going well. How are things going?
3: We're doing well, Dan. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, it's been uh it's been a crazy fall already, and it's, in some ways it feels like it's just barely gotten started with only covering three games so far. But um, there's never a dull moment on this beat, that's for sure.
1: How would you, you know, start defining the Eli Drinkwitz era with three games under his belt, if you could at all? How would you define what's happening so far?
3: It, just, it feels like so much has happened, and you had three games that were just so different. And the problem with football is it's such a small sample size. So sometimes we just we just kind of revert to what happened most recently. And that was a really impressive um, game against LSU. But you know, before that, they didn't play very well at Tennessee. I thought they kind of took a step back that week. And then the week before, you know, you're going up against Alabama in the first game, and expectations should have been too high for Missouri in that one. But I thought they they held their ground. They looked okay out there. It's just it's just weird if you would have mixed the games up in different order, um, I think your opinion of this team would be a lot different. But Hey, that LSU game was – I don't care if LSU ends up being not very good this year. They've got a lot of talent on that team. And Missouri is an entertaining team. They got it done with defense on the goal line stand. And I think they're playing really hard for them. I I think this team is bought in. Um, I think everybody knows that the record this year, maybe it's not all that important. But uh, it's, it's an entertaining brand of football, I can tell you that much.
1: How has he been able to navigate COVID-19 and the protocols and everything that goes into place, not only for the jurisdiction in Columbia, but campus uh, protocols, the school protocols, and then the SEC protocols? How do you think he's been able to navigate all that?
3: Well, it's been a real adventure. There was a time there over the summer, June, maybe early July, but mostly May and June, where he was kind of bragging about their numbers. They were so low and they were doing so well. And we saw these other high numbers at other schools. Well, I don't know if it was karma or what, but then it kind of came back to bite them a little bit. Cause in July they had a, a lot of cases. There were times in, in camp and preseason camp and it wasn't even really camp. It was just preseason practices that were sh- strung out over six weeks um, where the numbers went up in certain position groups. And then there was a stretch where they thought they were going to be without about 12 guys for uh, one of their games uh, so it's been kind of up and down. I think the the thing that's frustrating for Missouri and and a lot of Eli's peers around the SEC and around college football are kind of feeling this too. Is this is the contact tracing is um, it's it's can really wreck your roster, uh, and it you know it's usually cases where players don't even have the virus, but if they've been in a close contact with someone who does, then they've got to be out for a minimum of fourteen days, and that's that's usually two games unless you get a buy in there. So I think that's been frustrating for him and, and for the team. They they understand those are the rules and, you know, this is all unprecedented times. So maybe, you know, looking back, maybe that's something that the sec or the NCAA might've been a little too strict with, but um, that, that part has been a little frustrating because they, they haven't had as many guys have the viruses they've had missed games. Uh, so that's just been kind of a challenge and that, it seems like those rules are kind of evolving as we go too. and, Uh, you know there may be some
1: ways around that. Dave Matter is my guest from the Post-Dispatch covers Mizzou Athletics and Mizzou has Kentucky this weekend it was supposed to be Florida last weekend it was supposed to be Vanderbilt and uh, you know it's been interesting to see them reschedule on the fly. How do you think teams have handled that just rescheduling on the fly as much as football teams love to game plan?
3: Yeah I I give these schools and the 80s and the commissioner greg sankey a lot of credit for being able to do this they've proven how nimble and agile they 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 can be uh with things like this and really you know they showed it too in the lsu game that w- that wasn't even covid related that was more weather related and within less than 48 hours they were able to to move that game 700 miles to columbia without really any problems. so i give those schools credit for being cooperative these are normally the type of things that um, you know, might cause some tension or some issues between schools. We've seen it in the past, but I think everybody kind of went into this year knowing that, Hey, um, this schedule could really get chaotic uh, just depending on, on COVID cases. And, you know, this, this is not Missouri's problem. Really there's these cases at Vanderbilt and Florida, but they impact Missouri and they've had to flip some games, but they've, they've been open to it. Um, and I, I think that's to these coaches who are just being resilient, you know, they, you gotta you gotta live with these things to some degree, and if you can still play your games, even if they're out of order, you know that's okay.
1: In many ways, Nick Saban is the face of college football. So he tests positive, then three negatives. What were you and your counterparts thinking as you were watching him coach on the sidelines against Georgia over the weekend?
3: Well, initially, before reading all the news, you're a little skeptical. Like, okay, is is the SEC? Um, are are they? Did they find some kind of loopholes, or or, or is, are they giving uh, Nick Saban some some favoritism here that maybe some other coaches wouldn't get? Um, but then you, you 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 read the coverage. I got to give Ross Dellinger at Sports Illustrated a lot of a lot of credit because he really cracked this and figured it out over the weekend um, with the negative test that came up. Um, you know, it, it proves the system isn't all that foolproof, and uh, you just wonder how many other cases. Around college football, you know, maybe would have been uh, these false positives, and maybe some players, or even some of the coaches out there, who are having to miss some games. Um, you know, maybe they could have uh, not missed games if, if you know, they get the same kind of treatment that Nick Saban did. But uh, I, w- I was going to be surprised if he was going to miss a game. I just figured they'd find a way somehow to get on him on the field. Um, and it, I don't know if it made a difference. I mean, they look pretty good with them. We don't know what it would have been like without him. But um, I'm, I'm glad for his. For his health, that that he's okay and he's not gonna probably miss any more games, it looks like.
1: Had there been any issues with crowds getting them in, out to the concession stands, bathrooms, those kind of things, the parking at Furrow Field, or has that gone pretty pretty smoothly as far as uh, what the university was hoping for?
3: You know, everything I've heard, they've they've it's been pretty smooth. You know, the, the capacity that they're working with, or that at least they did for the first two home games was um, a little less than 12,000. Now, they didn't have quite as many for the LSU game just because that game switched at the last minute and they didn't quite sell all the tickets. I, I think some fans still are, are a little hesitant about being in a big crowd um, after, you know, doing quarantine and social distancing for the last seven, eight months or so. Uh, so I, I understand where maybe they're not going to hit that capacity every week. Um, but no, I, I think they, Missouri's done a pretty good job. They kind of had this, they had so many different scenarios over the summer on what might be the possibility of what the capacity could be. And they laid out a bunch of plans and, and kind of were ready for anything. And then when they settled on this number, um, it, it seemed like just from what I've heard from people that have been to the games, just from watching it kind of unfold in the stadium, that, um, that, that it's been pretty smooth so far.
1: I'm really curious, um, and you mentioned contact tracing as it goes now with football, Rosters are so deep. Conzo Martin, college basketball—it's back. We're excited about Travis Ford here and what he's got with Slu. I, I just don't know how this may work with college basketball. Rosters aren't that deep. What are your concerns as you look forward to college basketball and seeing what may happen here?
3: Yeah, that's got to be the concern, and that's one that a lot of coaches have right now. Is you, you know it, you're not dealing with a hundred-man roster like you are in football, where you can afford to miss you know seven, eight, ten guys a, a week like you, like some football teams can. Um, you know, these guys live together, they're around each other all the time. Uh, you're just talking about, you know, with walk-ons, you're talking about what, maybe 15, maybe 16 players. If you got three walk-ons, um, and, and, you know, you get two of them get positive or even just one, uh, most of those teammates are going to be ruled close contacts because they've been around him for, uh, you know, the CDC's definition of close contact. So, and then in, I think it's in the big 10, um, you know, their rules are if you're, uh, if, if you test positive, you've you got to be quarantined or isolated for 21 days. You're talking about a lot of games there you're going to miss. So, yeah, I think coaches are, are concerned. I know they are. Um, you know, Conzo Martin last week was pretty candid about it. He was flat-out asked if he thinks they should be playing college basketball on this, and he didn't really have a straight answer. He said he, he's really uncomfortable with a lot of things. And um, so we'll see how it all unfolds. You hope that teams can stay intact. You hope the scheduling can be flexible like it has been with football. Maybe one upside is that, you know, I know some Missouri players have already had the virus, that it's it's basketball season is starting late enough to where maybe it's gone through portions of the roster already, and, you know, they're not going to catch it a second time. So not to say that's a silver lining that some kids have already been sick, but if we're just looking at, hey, how can they get through a season, you know, starting later in the year, gives them a little bit of an advantage.
1: You know, I'll wrap it up with this. Maybe we need to give the SEC some credit. They took a lot of heat for being the ones that said, look, we're going to take a slow approach to this in terms of we're not just going to automatically say, look, we're looking at spring football, we're canceling the season, built-in weekends that if somebody needs to have a weekend off or you have a Vanderbilt situation or a Florida situation, we can deal with that. And now late to the party, it's the Big Ten and the Pac-12 they have eight weeks. They have no weekends off. And as you mentioned earlier, as we were talking, um, you know, they, they could have 21 days in terms of quarantine for these kids. I'm not sure if these positive tests hit how they finish a season. I, I'm really concerned for those schools. I'm sure you probably are too.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think the SEC went about this pretty well. I mean, we, we, we'll be able to evaluate and measure this much better a year from now or 10 years from now. But the SEC, they were, they were not so quick to pull the plug on the season unlike those other conferences, they push back their start date to, to give uh, those campuses time to see those numbers kind of spike, which they they did, uh, especially here in Columbia, and then start the season a little bit later, maybe when the numbers start going down, which has happened here in Columbia, and then also build in those those bye weeks. They get the universal bye week on the week of December 12th, which Missouri has already filled with a game, and then every, other, every team gets their own bye week. Uh, for Missouri, that's November seventh. So, and they're even allowing teams to play December nineteenth, which is the weekend of the SEC championship game, if they're not, you know, qualified for the championship game. So, really, you're getting three other weeks to make up games, and I think that's a smart way to do it. And then the teams, like we said, have been pretty cooperative and and very decisive on. Hey, they know they, uh, like Missouri and Vanderbilt, they knew last I think it was Monday that hey, this game's not going to happen. Um, let's just change it now and not spend all week worrying about things. So I think they have done it the the right way. Will they get through the whole season without losing a game? That's the hope. Um, You know, we're only four weeks into it, so we'll we'll see what happens. And there's already been a lot of changes, but I do think they've figured out a way to go about it. And so far, so good.
1: Hey, Dave, great info. Appreciate it so much. Awesome stuff. And uh, love reading your work at STL today. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Dan. Dave Matter of STL today in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. More of what you want to hear. Scoops with
0: Danny Mac in podcast form on 101 ESPN.
1: Our thanks to Dave Matter from SDL Today and the Post-Dispatch for joining us. Talking a little college football, college basketball. Really interesting stuff as it uh, pertains to what may happen in particular with the Big Ten. So the Big Ten has got to play catch up here. They're going to have eight weeks with no bye weeks if you will no off weekends and they're going to do this with testing that if a guy gets a positive test he's out for 21 days so 76 teams have had a 7 week start the top 10 right now there's a couple of big 10 teams in there Clemson number 1 then Alabama Georgia Ohio State no surprise there Notre Dame Oklahoma State Florida Penn State BYU and Oregon Jeff Brom Purdue football head coach. And yes, he does have COVID-19.
2: This has been unfortunate. We've had good results. The the daily testing, I think uh, uh, our players, we've had great success rate on that. Unfortunately, it it, it got me uh, and it's something that uh, we're going to have to deal with. But, you know, there are going to be a few things flare up here and there. But I do think as far as testing our guys daily, having the the best medical procedures in college football uh, set up for our guys in order to play football. Uh, I think we're doing about as good as anybody right now on that. So I feel confident and I applaud the Big Ten uh, for the ability to get this
1: this daily testing going. However, if a player gets COVID-19 and he's got a roommate or he's been around somebody else, that is my concern going forward because contact tracing would then not allow those players to play. As it pertains to basketball, rosters is much shorter That's where it gets dicey. Looking ahead to late November, December, so on and so forth, it's going to be tough to try to get through this. But let's hope that they do. Off to baseball. My pick to win the World Series, no surprise. It's going to be the Dodgers. I think the Dodgers are a deeper team. I don't think he pitched to Randy Arosarena. The Dodgers can match up bullpen wise with Tampa Bay. I like the Dodgers. I also think that the stadium, neutral site, could be interesting as well. Here's Jeff Passan of ESPN. Early in the series, early in the NLCS, there were, you know, about 11,000 fans here a night. And it was very pro-Braves crowd. As the series went on though, and perhaps this is because the Dodgers came back from down 3-1, it became increasingly pro-Dodgers. And by the end, you heard Let's Go Dodgers chants throughout the place. Let's remember, Dodgers fans not only travel well, There are a lot more of them than there are Tampa Bay Rays fans. So I'm not sure that this is going to exactly sound like a home game for the Dodgers, but I think in the end, it is going to be a pro-Dodgers crowd. And look, they're used to playing in front of fans now. This is going to be the Tampa Bay Rays' first game in game one in front of fans all year long. I agree. They travel well. They'll be there. It'll be a Dodger pro crowd. It'll feel like a home crowd to an extent, even though you're on a neutral site. And believe me, that does make a difference off to hockey now we were talking about who wears the C and we do have a bunch of texts coming in on that 65780 Tory Krug Greg a great interview with Carricker and Smallman been thinking about it where do you pair him up and it seems like an obvious choice might be Justin Falk try to get the best out of him too
3: yeah I mean we played I mean, this is a few years ago now but uh we played together as a D deep and world championships for Team USA and um you know we we were able to uh, hold down the Ford on the blue line and, and bring the first medal uh, to Team USA in a very, very long time there. But um, I think more than anything, we got to know each other as people. Uh, we were actually roommates for the first couple of weeks there. Um, and then on the ice, it was, um, you know, a puck moving pair that, you know, took pride in both ends of the ice. And uh, we were able to feed off that chemistry. We played a little bit together on the power play as well. Um, but I think more than anything that, that sticks out is the off-ice uh, camaraderie getting to know each other a little bit. And, and uh, we have mutual friends that you know, throughout the league that we've been able to keep, keep in touch with as well. So the on-ice stuff will all take care of itself. If, we're, if we are paired up together, uh, again, I think it'll um,
1: be an easy transition. For Doug Armstrong, that's the pressure there. Falk has got to be the guy you traded for. And now he plays more the minutes and the positions in-game situation that maybe he did in Carolina with Petro gone Krug you know what you're getting there in terms of what he means to the power play we were talking about who would wear the C from the 573 Schwartz could he could be a puck hound workhorse leads by example agreed though it goes to Ryan O'Reilly yep that's where it goes uh this is also from the 573 you could mention Tarasenko but I think in no way shape or form does it go to Tarasenko I would agree plus he's hurt So you can't, at least in my mind, you don't give it to him. Uh, Let's see. Danny Mac, has a goaltender ever been the captain of a team? And this may surprise you, but the answer is yes. Uh, It's been done, I think, six or five or six different times. It it happened in the 40s and the 50s, not in recent time, not to my knowledge, or at least to my memory. I remember looking this up a while back, Um, but yes, it has been done. It's... Not often, but I think the, like the last time was in the 50s, but a goaltender has been a captain of a team. Dark Horse, according to the 3-1-4, would be Shen with the C. Um, yeah, he'll be in the conversation. I just think Ryan O'Reilly's the guy. I think it's a perfect fit. Whether or not he wants it or not, I'm Doug Armstrong. I'm Craig Baruby. I sit him down. Not that he needs an explanation. I say, look, you're the leader. You're the guy that we all turn to. You lead by example by what you do on the ice. You're the guy. Uh, 618, what about Pareko? I mentioned it earlier. I think that that's what you do going forward. Um, Let's see. Luongo is a captain in Vancouver. I don't remember that. Could have happened. Let's see. Uh, Let's see. Dark uh, Horse, Shen, maybe. That would be something to think about. Also signed long-term. 618, worried about this crowd. It would be intimidating for the Rays. By their standards, this would be a large crowd. Well... No, they're not going to be intimidated and they draw about 10. So it's going to feel kind of like what they're used to a normal game. It's unfortunate because they've had some really good teams and really good players that have come through the trop that a lot of fans haven't seen. I remember last time we were there was maybe four years ago, had a good team, not a great team, but a good team. And it was primarily a Cardinal crowd. You got to remember the Cardinals trained in St. Pete for so many years. So a lot of transplants are down there and a lot of people that would go to Cardinal games. And it was primarily a Cardinal crowd in St. Pete. I just remember Evan Longoria being there. David Price being there. They have had some superstars in Tampa just can't hold on to them. That's, that's small the market. Issue. And they've done an incredible job of looking at other organizations, evaluating, and then developing, you know, Randy Rosarena obviously is at least on the surface right now, 60 to 80 at bats. He's a star. Now let's go to a thousand 60, 80 at bats and let's see where we're at. However, he's hit wherever he's been with the Cardinals in the minor league system. We'll see if that continues. Um, Let's see. From the 217, the C has to be the most overrated thing in sports. I I don't agree with that. I think the C is really important. I wish we had a C in baseball. Like To me, Molina would wear the C for the Cardinals. He is the leader of the Cardinals. Um, And he's involved in just about every play, especially, obviously, when you're on defense. And he's a franchise icon. Derek Jeter was a captain of... The Yankees, Jason Veritek, a captain, and he wore the C for the Boston Red Sox. I I don't think it's overrated because these are guys, too, that are kind of the leaders in your community, too. They're the ones that gather the guys and go to the events and do the things on the charitable side for the organization, kind of the face of the organization. They're also the guys that face the cameras on tough nights. So when the media is there, when we get rid of Zoom, well, we're never going to get rid of Zoom, but when the media can congregate in the clubhouse after a, you know, a walk-off and it's the A straight loss, he's the guy knowing it's the responsibility to talk to the media and kind of represent the franchise. That's the perfect word is responsibility, Dan. When you have a bad loss, it is your job to at
2: least let the public know we're still together. We're a team. We're going to move forward a lot of the time the captain takes ownership, even though they don't really need to, but it puts it on them, takes it
1: off the other people's shoulders. And if you think that players don't see that happening, I think fans are wrong. They do. And if they see a guy, especially young guys, I mean, think about how Chris Carpenter, Chris, not Matt, but Chris Carpenter learned from Roger Clemens, David Wells, um, Roy Halladay, when he was in Toronto comes to St. Louis and became a leader pat henken another one and then all of a sudden that gets passed to adam wainwright adam wainwright is passing that to jack flaherty and so on and so forth there is something to that and um that's why i don't know if a c has to be on the chest to represent that but it certainly is something of significance in my mind I, i just think it is i think it's important to have it it's not overrated it isn't More of what you want to hear. Scoops with Danny Mac in podcast form on
0: 101 ESPN.
1: If you haven't seen it, we have launched a new website, 101ESPN.com. Very easy to navigate all the uh, the shows and the interviews, like Tory Krug this morning, Pete Fairbanks of Tampa Bay, Dave Matter, which we had on this program, 101ESPN.com. Ribs and BK, they've got Brian Anderson, who called the American League Championship Series, as well as Jeremy Rutherford, and they can talk about Who wears the C in 2021? Ribs, BK, Alex are all coming up next on 101 ESPN. You have been listening to the TV
0: voice of the St. Louis Cardinals, Scoops with Danny Mack on 101 ESPN.